Romans chapter 1. Book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. And tonight we will be focusing on verse 17. Here's what we read. Romans 1, 16 through 17. The Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I need you to think back with me to last Sunday's message on verse 16. I hope you can remember at least a little bit of last Sunday's message, but I don't assume you do. So, uh, What happened last Sunday is we focused on the truth that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we said that there were two assumptions. One, all people need to be saved. And two, none of us have the power to do it ourselves. And then we looked at two wonderful truths from verse 16. Namely, one, God does have the power to save us. And two, God gives this saving power through this message called the gospel. God saves people through the gospel. Tonight, we ask a deeper question. How? How does hearing and believing the gospel save someone? And the reason that's our question is because that is what Paul is answering in verse 17. Verse 17 explains the how of verse 16, right? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, this is how it works, see, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So verse 17 explains the how of verse 16, how the gospel saves believers. Now, before we begin our study of verse 17, I want to note how this verse, verse 17, is a gentle rebuke of those who like ignorance when it comes to doctrine, theology. There are those who, who would say, Jesus loves me, I'm saved, and that's all I need to know. I don't need to know the hows. I don't need to know the whys. I just need to know that Jesus loves me, and that's enough. They might even think that we waste our time coming here on Sunday nights, learning the hows of salvation. But God gave us verse 17 for a reason. He gives us verse 17 and He gives us these 16 chapters of Romans because He does desire us to know and to understand these things. There is glory in the how. 
the better we understand the gospel, the the better we comprehend the magnitude of of what God has done for us and, and the wonder of His grace, the better we will see why we should love God and worship God. As we dig deeper into the Bible, into the questions of how God's love for us has been felt and how God has saved us, it is in those kinds of questions that we see the glory of God here and there and everywhere. We grow, we become Christ-like, and we become better worshipers. The Proverbs tell us that knowledge is to be preferred to gold, and that it is fools who love ignorance. There is no greater knowledge, no more valuable knowledge, than the knowledge that God gives to us in the Bible. We are not ultimately saved by knowledge. We are not saved by knowing things. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. But the Spirit does use knowledge, learning things from the Bible, as a means of bringing us to to Christ and transforming us into the image of Christ. All of that to say, Mount Hermon, do not despise this kind of thing. Don't despise the how questions. Romans is a book that will require a lot of thinking from us. Romans is a book that will require you to wrestle with things in your mind. And there might be times when you, you might want to say, you know, you, you get into the, 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 the difficulties of a, of a Romans 5 or into the, the hard truths of a Romans 9. And, and, and your mind just might want to say, I don't want to deal with this. Just Jesus loves me. That's all I need to know. Don't do that. Don't do that. Trust that God has given these things for your good. They are worth the wrestling with. Embrace this task. As we study the book of Romans, I want to encourage you to study Romans. This is the greatest book in the greatest book ever written. And we are learning from it together as a church. So don't waste this valuable opportunity. Be reading it at home, thinking about it at home. Ask questions when the messages are over. Pray over these things. Make the most of these weeks and months and however long it takes in the book of Romans. With that said, let's come to verse 17 in our question. How does God, through the gospel, save those who hear and believe it? I mean, how does it work? I mean, if I just came to you and started speaking words, why should that make a difference in your eternal destiny? Why should that create supernatural changes in your life? At first, Paul's statement seems very strange. How does the gospel save? For in it, the gospel the message of Christ crucified for sinners, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. What? (laughs) That doesn't sound like good news, right? The righteousness of God is our problem. We're unrighteous. And the gospel comes to us and tells us that God is righteous? That's that's telling us the bad news. That's telling us our our problem, that that, that He is righteous and we are not, and therefore we, we need to be saved. If the gospel simply tells us that God is righteous, it's pointing out the problem, but it's not bringing a solution. 
imagine yourself in the shoes of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was at a point in his life when he wanted so badly to understand. This is before he's a Christian, by the way. Romans 1.17 is the verse that led to Martin Luther becoming a Christian. Genuine Christian, right? He had this, this deep longing. He said, I want to understand what Paul was teaching in this book called Romans. And he said that this verse 17, and particularly this phrase, the righteousness of God, he said that phrase tormented his soul. He said, if the message of the gospel is the message that God is righteous and we are not, how is that possibly good news? Well, it is certainly true that God is righteous and we are not, but that's not the message of the gospel. It's the bad news that you must know and understand before the gospel can come in and be sweet to us. But Luther came to understand that what's being said here in verse 17 is not simply that God is righteous, but rather that God's... Wait. We'll get there. The Protestant Reformation and all that came from it, including you and I being here tonight in a Baptist church began when God caused the light bulb in Martin Luther's mind to click on as he was praying and wrestling with Romans 1.17. And I am praying that God might cause some light bulbs to click on in us tonight. What does it mean that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed? Revealed. Revealed. This word revealed, it means to, to, to... It refers to something that was not seen and now it is seen right it is manifested listen to how paul uses this same word in first corinthians 1 7 first corinthians 1 7 he said so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our lord jesus christ at this moment christ is not with us physically we can't see him Right? We can't touch Him. He, he's with us through the Spirit, but He's not here in His physical self. But there will come a day when our Savior will physically, visibly come out from heaven and He will appear before our eyes and He will come to us to gather us to Himself. And Paul says that is Jesus being revealed. And I'm going to argue that that's exactly the way we ought to understand the word revealed here. Righteousness comes to us from God in the gospel. Now, in the past, there have been three main ways that people have understood this phrase. In this message of Christ crucified, so I'm, I'm sitting down with somebody, I'm sharing the gospel with them, maybe I'm in a you know, coffee shop or something, and they're sitting here, and I'm, and I'm telling them the gospel, and according to this passage, as they are hearing, and by God's grace, as they're believing what they're hearing... God's righteousness is being revealed. What does that mean? One view is that it simply means that the attribute of God's righteousness is being revealed. That in this message of Christ crucified, it is being disclosed that our God is a righteous God. Now that's absolutely true, isn't it? Wouldn't we agree God is a righteous God? And it is true that if you think about the gospel, we do see that. I mean, what's the cross about? It's about God saying, I can't just sweep your sins under the carpet and save you. 
I have to deal with your sins. I am a just God. I am a righteous God. And so God punishes our sins on Christ at the cross. So we see the righteousness of God is taught in the gospel. But is anyone saved simply by knowing that God is righteous? No, lots of people will tell you that God is righteous. They've never been saved. So I don't think that's mainly what Paul was saying here. A second view is that when this message of Christ crucified, the gospel, is, is being shared with someone and it's, and it's heard and it's believed, the righteous character of God is revealed in the life of the believer. That is... When you and I are believing the gospel day in and day out, the righteous character of God is being revealed in us as the gospel changes us and makes us like Him. Now, would we agree that that's true? You should. That is true. The righteousness of God, all that makes Him good, right? His his patience, His love, His fairness, his compassion, his honesty, his faithfulness, those attributes of God should be being revealed in us as we believe the gospel. So I believe that Christ died for me. I believe that he is taking care of me. I rest in his work for me on the cross. And as I believe those things, God is changing me and he's giving me his patience. He's giving me his compassion. He's giving me his generosity. And then as I live in the world, the world sees in me the character of God. That's called being salt and light, isn't it? So that's an absolutely true statement. The only thing is, in this verse, Paul doesn't say in verse 17, in us, the righteousness of God is being revealed. What does he say, verse 17? In it. See the word it? It's an important word, right? It. And it, if you go back to verse 16, refers to the gospel. So while what I've just said is true, I don't think Paul's main point here is that as we believe the gospel, God's righteousness is being revealed in our life. That's absolutely a true statement. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Rather, I agree with the interpretation that Luther discovered, an interpretation that has stood the test of time. I believe it's absolutely correct. And that is that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is His righteousness for us. What we lack is righteousness. Church, can we, can we go to heaven without righteousness? Can we stand in the presence of a holy God without righteousness? And what do we utterly lack? And what does Isaiah say? All your righteousnesses are like filthy rags. You have no righteousness. <laughs> we lack it. And in the gospel, the righteousness of God, His perfection, is counted to us. It is given to us. It appears for us and saves us. Here's how Martin Luther talked about his wrestling with verse 17. It's a little lengthy, but it's so good. Listen. Listen to this. He said, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. 
But up till then, it was not the cold blood out of the heart, but it was a single word in chapter 1. The righteousness of God is revealed that stood in my way. I hated that word, righteousness of God, which, according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. In other words, he said, I struggled with verse 17 because I thought it was saying God is righteous and in that righteousness he's going to judge us. And I said, how's that the gospel? How is that good news? He goes on, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. Luther would tell stories about how he beat himself to try and bring his body into submission. He would talk about how he would be in his monk's quarters and and a lustful thought would come into his mind and he'd immediately up and run to the pond outside the monastery and he would just throw himself with his clothes on and everything into the freezing cold water to punish himself. And yet he said, despite all my efforts to try and be holy... I knew that God had not been placated, appeased. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteousness of God. The righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, murmured greatly. I was angry with God. And I said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue. It's the Ten Commandments. In other words, he says, as if it wasn't enough that every human being, because of our sinful nature, is crushed by the Ten Commandments, without God having to add pain to pain by the Gospel, and the Gospel coming with its threatening us with His righteousness and wrath, See, the gospel was a terrible thing at first for Luther. He hated it. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. And nevertheless, I beat importunately. I guess that's how you say that word. He means continuously, over and over, upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift from God. Namely, by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Listen to this. Luther says, Here I felt I was altogether born again. I had entered paradise itself through open gates. 
There, a totally other face of the entire scriptures showed itself to me. In other words, this verse clicked for him, and suddenly he saw the gospel and understood it for what it was. He was born again, and all of a sudden the scriptures that had been all about wrath and judgment to this point suddenly broke open with a new theme, a theme of mercy and love. Thereupon I ran through the scripture from memory, And I found in it other terms, an analogy as the work of God, that is what God does in us, the power of God with which He makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated it, the righteousness of God. In other words, this phrase, the righteousness of God that he had hated and that tormented his soul suddenly became as sweet as honey to his lips. He began to love this phrase, the righteousness of God. Why did he love it? Because he realized it was God's righteousness for him. Right? Giving him what he lacked so he could go to heaven so his sins could be forgiven so God could be his and he could be God's. Thus, that place in Paul, for me, was truly the gate to paradise. I wonder if you remember the scripture that God used most in your life to save your soul. This was Martin Luther's. I'll stop there with the quote. There there is more. According to this interpretation, what Paul was saying is that what is manifested when the gospel is heard and believed is God's righteousness given to us so that we are counted forgiven, acquitted, justified in His sight. Here's the glorious truth. Though we are sinners, we are, aren't we? Though we are sinners, when we hear and believe the message of Christ crucified and rest in Him, God credits His perfect righteousness to us and sees us, sinners, as holy in His sight. We are not yet made holy, but we are counted holy. It's as if I'm a student in God's school, and I've made all F's. But God comes and takes His straight A's and puts them on my report card. And now suddenly I get all the benefits of being a star student. I don't deserve any of them. They're given to me by grace. The unrighteous deserve hell. The righteous deserve heaven. I am unrighteous. I deserve hell. But God counts me righteous and gives to me what the righteous deserve, even though I deserve none of it. It's good, good stuff, church. Hmm. All right, I got to prove this to you. What, what is the evidence that this is the right way to understand this verse? And uh, evidence, I'm just going to give you two. The first evidence is exactly what Martin Luther said it's the context, it's the rest of the verse, right? Why is it that at the end of this verse, Paul tries to prove his point by quoting from his Bible, the Old Testament? And the verse he chooses to quote from is Habakkuk 2 4. The righteous shall live. By faith. Notice the connection between the first half of verse 17 and the second half of verse 17. The first half talks about righteousness and faith. Do you see those two words in the first half? Righteousness, faith, God's righteousness, for faith, from faith, for faith. 
And then the second half of the verse talks about righteousness and faith. The righteous shall live by faith. In the first half, we have the righteousness of God from faith for faith. And then the second half, it's no longer the righteousness of God, it's man's righteousness. And they're counted righteous by faith. How did that happen? How did God, how does it make sense that Paul is going to prove his point by pointing to this verse in the Old Testament that talks about man being counted righteous by faith? The only way that makes sense is if, I know this is a little bit technical, is if God's righteousness in the first half of the verse is the same righteousness as that in the second half of the verse. That doesn't make sense to go home. Think about that tonight. Meditate on verse 17. See for yourself that the only way this verse makes sense is if God's righteousness at the beginning of the verse is the same as man's righteousness at the end. God's righteousness given to man by faith. Just as Christ will be revealed from heaven, that is, He will come to us and be for us on that day, so God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. It comes to us and stands for us. Second evidence. Romans 3, 20 through 24. Just turn a page or two. You'll see, we'll study these verses in greater detail at a later date. This is the biggest moment of the letter. It's interesting that at this, the biggest moment of the book of Romans, we find Paul making what I think is this very same point. Listen to these verses. See if Paul is not teaching. Romans 3, verse 20. This very same point that God's righteousness is given to us sinners through the gospel. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law came knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, recognize that phrase, has been manifested. Boy, that's a lot like revealed, isn't it? Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Listen carefully. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Isn't that clear? This doesn't happen in the law. It happens in the gospel. The righteousness of God for us who believe. His righteousness for me. His righteousness for you through Jesus Christ. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is counted righteous, by His grace as a gift. And how does that gift come? It comes in this little package called preaching the gospel. When you hear it and you believe the gospel, this gift comes, God's righteousness for you through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's only possible because of the cross. If there was no cross, we could preach the gospel every day. You'd never be counted righteous. You could believe the gospel with all your heart. You'd never be counted righteous. Only because of what Christ did at the cross does this work. So at the Mount Everest of the Bible, that's what I think these verses are, the place where Paul more clearly than anywhere else in the whole Bible explains how God saves sinners, he teaches that it is through God's righteousness being given to us. And I think, therefore, that's probably what he's saying as he introduces this theme in verse 117. The rest of my sermon, 
is reasons why this is great. The rest of my sermon is reasons why this truth is glorious. Because I don't want you to leave here having heard tonight, all right, God's righteousness has been counted to me nice and leave. I want you to treasure this truth. I want this to be gates of paradise for you the way it was for Luther. I want you to live in this and soak in it. This is God's love for you. This is the how. How has God loved me? How has Jesus loved me? By dying for me and counting me righteous, giving me God's righteousness. Okay. Six reasons this is glorious and great. Number one, because once God's righteousness has been given to us, our sins are no longer counted against us, but are forgiven. Isn't it good to be a forgiven people? We are guilty. We, de- we deserve to be declared guilty by the judge. But the judge declares us guilty people, innocent. And he gives us all the benefits of being a righteous person. And it isn't a travesty of justice. He does it fairly. He does it righteously. Why? Because in a legal sense, by God's grace, our sins were counted against Christ at the cross. And Christ's righteousness is counted to us. Christ, the righteous one, is treated as unrighteous and receives all that the unrighteous deserve at the cross. And we, the unrighteous, are treated as the righteous one. Children of God. It's the great exchange. And Jesus chose for this to happen. Jesus voluntarily took the curse of the... Here is is Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, deserving of all blessings, and He voluntarily said, there is a, a vast number of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and they deserve all of this horrendous wrath of God poured on them. I choose to take their place, and I want them to have the blessings I deserve. Now that's love. He willingly took our place at the cross. He willingly gives to us His blessings. Our sins are paid for and forgiven. That's one benefit of being counted righteous. Second benefit, second reason this is glorious, is that because once God's righteousness is given to us in the gospel, we now have peace with God. Look at Romans 5, verse 1. The first several verses of Romans 5 are Paul doing exactly what I'm doing now, telling all the reasons why this gospel is great, (laughs) telling all the reasons why why being counted righteous is, is a wonderful thing. And in Romans 5, 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, counted righteous, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As what this is ultimately all about is us being reconciled to God. What a blessing it is to have peace with God. Just think for a moment about how terrible it is to have God as your enemy. It's terrifying. I mean, we're like like an ant who deserves to be squashed under the mighty finger of God. 
And there's nothing we can do to fight back against him. There's nothing we can do to to harm him. No, we are guilty. He is righteous. We are weak. He is strong. We have made ourselves his enemies. And he is righteous to come in and to crush us. But instead of us remaining as his enemies, he comes in and instead of crushing us, he makes peace with us. So that we are no longer his enemies, but his children and oceans and oceans and oceans of love are lavished upon us from His divine heart. We now have His protection and His provision. Let the whole world hate us, but we have peace with God, and that is ultimately what matters. It is better to have everyone else despise us and to have peace with God than to have peace with everyone else and to be at war with God. This means everything. Now, by the way, having peace with God is not first and foremost about feelings in your heart. This is a legal reality. When you believe on Jesus, you are declared legally at peace with God. Right? In the courts of heaven. A treaty of love and peace has been signed in the blood of Jesus by God's hand and given to you. He is at peace with you if you are in Christ. No matter what you feel. Emotions go up and down, right? One day I feel close to God. One day I don't feel so close. One day I feel like God is all around me and loves me. And one day I feel like I've messed up so bad He can never love me. But despite all my ups and downs of my feelings, my peace with God never changes. And as we believe that doctrinal reality, as we steep ourselves in that theological truth, over time the peace in the heart grows and rises and becomes more stable and more secure. A third reason it is glorious that we have God's righteousness given to us in the gospel is that it sets us free from having to try and earn his favor. No longer do we have to keep going up that broken ladder of trying to climb our way into heaven by keeping the commandments. That way would never have worked because we'd have to be perfect and we've all blown it. No longer do we have to try and earn brownie points with God. We already have his love. We already have his favor through Jesus. And now we can obey God and His commandments as an act of worship, as an act of delight, as an act of saying, you've done so much for us. We just we want it, we trust You. We want to do what's right to please You and, and for Your glory and our good. It's no longer about earning brownie points with God. It's no longer about saying, i got to get closer to God today. Let me even things out a little bit. I messed up yesterday. Let me do better today. It's not like that anymore. We know that in Christ, we have peace with God. We are counted righteous. His love is on us. We are okay in our relationship with Him. And so no longer do I have... Do you see how freeing this is? Now I can take my attention off of myself and begin more freely devoting my time to loving God and loving others, serving God and serving others. I'm not paralyzed by this fear. The love of God has taken away my fear. I rest in Christ. I am counted righteous. That will never change. And so we can get off that 
never-ending treadmill trying to work our way into God's love. Number four. I could take a long time on this one. I, I won't. I think it's so important it's not talked about very often in our day. But I think one of the most glorious truths of the fact that when we believe the gospel, God's righteousness is given to us. One of the most glorious truths about it is this. When that happens, then the Holy Spirit can dwell in us and fix us and make us what we've been declared to be. We've talked about this before. Do you remember why once a year the Levitical priest, the high priest, would go and offer a sacrifice at the altar on the Day of Atonement for all the people? Do you remember what that was about in Leviticus 16, verses 16 and 17? It was because God put his holy presence in the middle of these sinful people. And God said, I am too holy to be with that which is unholy. The only way I can be with you, Israel, the only way my presence can be among you is if you are counted holy by the sacrifice. Well, now in New Testament days, we are the temple of God. God comes and puts His Holy Spirit inside of us. God lives in us. Think it, doesn't that blow your mind? God dwells in me and in you. And together, corporately and as individuals, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. How can that be? I know why it needs to be. I, if the Holy Spirit doesn't come inside of me, I'll never be fixed. I'll, I'll, my, I'll never grow in patience. I'll never grow in love. I'll never grow in compassion. And, and when Jesus comes, I won't be ready. I won't be a part of a bride, spotless and radiant. So I need the Spirit to come, but the Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. And that which is holy cannot dwell in me, which is so unholy. Except the same way it worked for Israel. A sacrifice had to be killed. And so because of Christ's perfect life and because of Christ's death on the cross and because of Christ's resurrection, Christ's righteousness in the gospel is given to me. I am counted righteous in God's sight and therefore he is just to unite his Holy Spirit with my soul. Justification makes sanctification possible. If you were not counted righteous, you could never be made righteous. This was the work that had to be done so that what was lost in the Garden of Eden could be fixed before Jesus comes back or finished as he comes back. Does that make sense? Nod your head if that makes sense. See if I get it. Okay, five people think it makes sense. That's good. We'll, we'll take five. We'll come back to it many more times. So. All right, number five. Number five. Fifth reason why this is glorious, that when we believe the gospel, God gives to us the righteousness we lack, is that this guarantees for us the hope of a glorious future. Look at Romans 5, verse 2. Romans 5, verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith and to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
In other words, when, when God counts us righteous in the gospel, when, when we believe and God gives to us his righteousness, he doesn't do that only to later lose us and cast us into hell, right? When God counts us righteous, it's because his, his, his plan is to bring us to heaven. And friend, every person God justifies, he will glorify, Romans 8, verse 30. There is no such thing as a person who believes the gospel and is counted righteous in Christ who will not go to heaven. There's not a one. The Bible is clear. Every person who believes and is counted righteous will ultimately be glorified and have they ha we have the hope that one day we will dwell in the glory of God forever. If you have been counted righteous in Christ, live in that hope. He who began this good work in you will bring it to completion. And so as you rest in this truth, God has given me his righteousness, you have the hope of heaven. And finally, number six. The reason it is so glorious, one reason it is so glorious that God has given us his righteousness in the gospel is that it gives us reason to rejoice even in our sufferings. Look at Romans 5, 3 through 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All of those verses, 3 through 5, still stem from Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. In other words, here's another benefit of God's righteousness coming to us in the gospel. Because we know that God does not declare people righteous only to lose them before they get to heaven, we can know as we go through trials, as we go through fire, as we go through difficult times, that God is doing this as He brings us to heaven. We understand what is going on. God did not justify us and begin this good work in us only to leave it complete, incomplete, only to fail to make us holy, only to leave us in a sinful state. No! God justified us and put His Spirit within us, and therefore we know we have confidence in a glorious future. And therefore, we can face the trials that must come as we go in that direction, for we understand what God is doing. He's completing the work. He's declared us righteous so that He can make us righteous. Our justification gives us reason for courage and hope as we go through the difficult journey sometimes of our sanctification. So, verse 17, chapter 1. The gospel saves people because as we hear it and believe it, God's righteousness that we need is revealed to us. It comes to us. It is for us. And it makes us righteous in His sight. And we get all the blessings and benefits of salvation. Much more to learn from verse 17. But that's enough. Praise the Lord. He is very, very good. Very good to us. 
इन्हीं